invite you to be seated, and as you're seated, to take out your copy of God's Word, should you have brought it, and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be in Colossians chapter 2 today, and I'll release the uh, young people through grade 4 to go off to the classes. They're ready for them. We're in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And if you've been part of us here through the summer, you know that we've been in a series called Letters That Live, and we're looking at God's timeless message to the early church. And uh, we're having great fun doing that, looking at the truth of the gospel, which is God's timeless message, and just finding ourselves rooted in the uh, absolute truth of what the gospel is and the excitement of it and how we can thank God for that and grow in it. And so we've been looking at uh, Colossians, and we've been going through a summer reading, reading the New Testament chronologically, if you've been following along with that in the Digging Deeper and uh, been, again, seeing over and over how the, the gospel is the truth of God's word. And as we've looked at Colossians, we're, we're already uh, almost halfway through. And uh, we've taken a look at the, the fact that it starts out with a prayer of thanksgiving from Paul and then turns into a prayer of intercession as, God, uh, as Paul thanks God for the things that are happening in this church in Colossae. It's a, it's a church that he had never actually been to, but he had uh, heard about it, and, and his friend Epaphras, his fellow servant, had actually planted this church by sharing the gospel, and so he had never actually been there. This is a church of Gentile believers, and so the, the letter is primarily written from that vantage point. And it's written to strengthen them and to give them encouragement from, from Paul so that they could know what this gospel is that they've accepted that has begun changing the world. And so we thought about... What would it be like if the gospel could change the world we live in today? And I think I'm ready for that. How about you? And uh, so then that moved into a prayer, uh, uh, asking God to, to strengthen them in these areas that he had thanked God for. And then we looked at the supremacy of Christ, how, how through Christ all of, uh, all of the universe, everything in creation will be reconciled. And then we looked at also how that has become possible for us to have an intimate relationship with Christ so that the gospel is is big in its scope in that it is over everything but it's also intimate in its scope that it saves us and then last week we looked at this unfolding of the mystery and what that means that the mystery could be unfolded and how we can give ourselves to that understanding that we will experience suffering and so that was an encouraging message last week, don't you think? Amen. And so now we're moving on, and, and we're beginning to prepare ourselves, and Paul has laid the groundwork now to really lay some important things in this, in this passage we're looking at today. It, it's a significant uh, few verses that we're looking at, and, and there's some things that, that if we're really able to grab hold of these, we're going to understand in a new way that the gospel brings new life to us. So let's take a look at this, and we'll start in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and move on from there. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, and strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. 
who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the, the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Amen. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to a cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God, thank you for this word that we're looking at today. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring it. Thank you that we can know it's true and without error. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating it for us. I pray, Lord, that you'd open it for us today in a way that impacts our lives, that we can go away from here changed. So speak to us, Lord, through your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, the passage and uh, the theme for today, the gospel brings new life, and our big idea, the thing that we'll all remember weeks from now, is that receiving Jesus Christ as Lord frees us to live in him. And so as we receive Christ as Lord, we'll be freed to live in him. And that starts right in these first two verses. And a few weeks ago, I told you that these two verses almost seem to be the theme of Colossians, that it's, it's like here where Paul's really saying, since all these things I prayed for you, now, then here's what you need to do, and now we'll move forward into a second section of the ladder. So as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, now we could almost spend quite a while just thinking about what that is. And many times, you know, you'll get asked the question, have you received Jesus Christ as Lord, and what does that mean? And really, what does that mean? And that is the, the root of the gospel. As we look at this, it says, just as you have received Christ, Jesus is Lord. And we understand that Christ is Messiah. It's the anointed one. That's the title that Jesus has, and Jesus is his name. When he was born, it said, give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so we've got Christ titled Jesus as Lord. So what does it mean to receive Christ Jesus as Lord? And I would suggest to you that what it means is that you, you believe what happened to Christ and all that it meant. So, so you receive and believe all that happened to Christ and everything that it meant as well. And I think a lot of times it, it can be that, that people look at the cross and they look at Jesus as a historical statement and they say, okay, I received the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Well, you haven't received Christ as Lord if that's what you've done. Okay, so to receive Christ as Lord, Christ Jesus as Lord, is to understand and know the fact that he came as God, and he took on flesh, and he lived, and he died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, amen, and he's at the right hand of God the Father, and one day he's going to return. And so you receive that as truth, but you also receive what it meant. And what it meant was that it had to happen because our sin had severed our relationship with God. 
And what it, what it meant was that Christ came to fulfill the plan of God to bring salvation to the world. And as you understand and you receive that, and then you begin to take your life, which has been centered around yourself, and you begin to center your life around Christ as the Lord of your life. So to receive that allows you to be free to continue in him. And how do you do that? Well, there's four steps that Paul gives in this first verse. You're rooted. And it's interesting that that one's in the past tense. That happens at the moment that you trust Christ. You're rooted in him. Jeremiah 17, it says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose confidence is in him. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. No worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So once we come to receive Christ as our Savior, we begin to really live because we get rooted next to the stream of the living water of God, which is constantly strengthening us and filling us and allowing us to grow and to bear fruit and to be strength and not to fear and not to be ashamed or afraid. And so this rooted aspect is huge. And then being built up. And the tense on this is a continual process. So this isn't something that just happens once. It's something that continually happens in our lives. We're continually being built up by the presence of Christ in us. And it's interesting, right? We see, and I've mentioned this to you several times, in Christ. How important in Colossians this idea of being in Christ is and having Christ in you. And when you receive Christ, Jesus, Christ Jesus is Lord, then Christ comes in you, and, and Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. And it's possible to live a different life because you're rooted in him, because you're being built up in him. You see that in him again. And then you're strengthened in your faith as you experience these things, and, and your strength continues to get stronger and stronger as you realize what it means to have Christ in you. And then that causes you to overflow with thankfulness. And I think this is so significant as I've been considering this, and, and it's one of the reasons that, I, that we have this verse of the month to be the one that's been selected for this month. I really believe if as, as followers of Christ, if we could really grasp hold of what's happened in our lives because of the gospel, because of Christ in us and us being in Christ, if as believers we could get a hold of that, it would cause us to be so amazingly thankful that the world would wonder what in the world is going on. Right? What if, what if overflowing with thankfulness was the identifying characteristic of each person who'd been rescued from death to life? Amen? You know, we... We sang the song, Thank You, Lord. And how many of you were like overwhelmed and how many of you were like, how many times are we going to say thank you, Lord? And if that was running through your mind, I might suggest that in heaven you're going to do it a few more times than that. At the depth of my core of my being, overflowing with gratefulness and thankfulness for the fact that, that Jesus saved me. What? Why? It's amazing. So, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord frees us to live in him. 
we're going to see three ways that it frees us. The first way is that it frees us from emptiness to fullness, from emptiness to fullness. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, there it is, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. You have been given fullness in Christ, there it is, who is the head over every power and authority. All right, so, so we have this idea that we are freed from, from emptiness to fullness or completeness. There's a completeness that's available for us in Christ that we didn't have before. Right, Pasco calls it the God-shaped hole. Ecclesiastes says it's eternity that's placed in the hearts of men. And we try to fill that with things. And Paul now is beginning to warn this church in, in Colossae. He's saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. All right? and, and the idea here is get active in this. As, you're, as I'm praying for you and as I'm showing you who Christ is, that he's supreme over everything, that he has secured your salvation, that he's in you and that you're in him, as you grab hold of this, see to it, make every effort, work really hard to make sure no one takes you captive. And the idea here is make sure nobody kidnaps you. All right? That's kind of what the word means here. So it's the idea that, you know, we talked about how, how the early believers really, literally felt they had become the children of God. They had literally become sons and daughters of God. And so as children of God, see to it that you don't allow yourself to get kidnapped, okay? And, and that, that's really cool as I thought about that in this passage. Because what would it be that would kidnap me from God? What would it be that would take me captive away? And Paul spells it out for the church in Colossae, and I believe we can learn from this really well. Hollow and deceptive philosophy, human tradition, and the basic principles of the world. Ralph Neighbor, in his study guide, Survival Kit, talks about four sources of authority. And I think we see them here in these verses pretty clearly. Four sources of authority. And each one of us have these sources of authority that enter into our lives. And three of those are good, but if we rely on those solely, they become unhealthy for us. And Paul's saying, if that happens to you, you will be taken captive. Okay, so what are those four sources of authority? Well, the first one, neighbors suggest, is uh, intellect, right? Intellect can become your source of authority. So in other words, what I reason, what I, what I have determined in my mind is right or wrong. If I've reasoned that out, then that becomes my source of authority, Okay, and, and that's here, these hollow and deceptive philosophies. These are the things that, that I've reasoned, or people have reasoned must be right. And we collide with that all the time in our culture, don't we? And, and it's nothing new that people have thought to themselves, I think this would be right. And so intellect becomes the first one. The second one, the second source of authority in our life is experience. It's our emotions, it's our feelings, it's our senses, the things that we've experienced in our lives in different ways. So, so it's kind of like my experience tells me if the stove is on and I put my hand on it, it will hurt. So the authority is my experience has told me that's going to hurt and I'm not going to do it. So there's ways in which this is very positive. So our experiences can be what, what drive us and what cause us to determine what's right or wrong. The third area is tradition. 
All right, so what has tradition taught us? What, what have those who've gone before us told us is right or wrong? And we can rely on that as our source of authority. The problem comes that a lot of times tradition is based on the intellect and experience of people who went before us. And if we can't trust our intellect and experience, how can we trust the intellect and experience of people who went before us? And so these three sources uh, of, of, um, of authority philosophies, traditions, or basic principles, these emotions, if we rely on those solely, we'll find ourselves believing the lies that come into the world instead of the truth. So how does tradition fit in? And, you know, I've, lots of times when I meet with couples for premarital, I talk about the fact that no matter how you've been raised, you assume that the way you've been raised is normal. Okay, no matter how dysfunctional or whatever it is, you believe the way you've been raised is normal, all right? And, and you believe everybody is just thinking the way you are, okay? And, and that's what gets us into all these conflicts all the time because we don't understand that not everybody sees the world the same way as I do, which may be a good thing. But as we look at that and we think about that, all right, and, and so when I talk with couples, I say, okay, so here's the deal. The way that you've been raised, you feel is normal. And the way you've been raised, you feel is normal. And when you come into one home and begin to live together, if you don't figure out a way to make a new normal, you're just going to keep butting against each other. And you're going to have these two normals in the house that isn't going to work out. So you take those two normals and you blend them together into one normal so that you have this new normal that you create in your home. And if you don't do that, then you're both relying on your traditions, and pretty soon one of you is setting up the tree on Christmas Eve, and the other one's tearing it down because it was supposed to be set up on Christmas Day. So you've got to be careful with that. But the traditions can become our source of authority. The final source of authority is Scripture, all right? God's Word, what God has revealed to us through His Word. And, and so as we look at this, what, what in, in the passage that we look at, you've been given fullness in Christ. And so Christ has come in you. And, and we understand and know that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. And so the Word comes into our lives and, and God has preserved that for us here so that we can take those other sources of authority and place them underneath the authority of Scripture. And that becomes huge because the voices that cry into our head as to what's right or wrong, if we rely on our intellect or our experience or our tradition, we can be led astray and we can be kidnapped by thoughts that are hollow. Does that make sense? You understand that? Eight of you do. I'm glad. All right. So it's that idea of wisdom and knowledge that we talked about last week. And the thing that makes it so significant to remember that the fullness we've been given in Christ is that that fullness comes because he has authority over every power. He, he's, he's been given authority over every power. And so we can trust that the truth he gives us is real. So where are you looking for your authority? Because a lot of times I hear people say, well, Scripture's my authority. And they say, well, how much time do you spend reading it? Uh, uh, well, so what, what, if we're not careful, what happens is what we think Scripture says can become our authority. And then that's how we get taken captive. Make sense? Okay, good. So how does understanding what it means to be complete in Christ keep you from being swayed by empty thoughts? 
The second thing we see as we're looking at this truth that receiving Jesus Christ as Lord frees us to live in him, the second thing we see is that we're freed from death in our sins to real life in Christ. We're freed from death in our sins to real life in Christ. So it says, in him you are also circumcised. Here it is, in him circumcised, putting off sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done with Christ, by Christ. Having been buried with him and baptized, raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Amen. Amen. So here's the deal. Paul's writing to, to Gentile believers. And he's, he's writing to them to help them understand that they've been made alive with Christ. And they get this, they've trusted Jesus, but, but they're, they're still trying to understand what all this means. Remember, this, this summer we've been looking at the fact that right now the letters to the early church have us right at the pivot of time as God continues to unfold the story of salvation history for us. All right, so we've got this, this Old Testament that we look at in Scripture, and we say, wow, what's this all about? And, and so we've got people like Paul who have studied this all their lives as Pharisees, and they've got this great understanding of what the Old Testament is, and then Christ comes along. And Christ comes along in a most unexpected way uh, from what they were anticipating, and he establishes his reign, but then leaves to come back to finish that. And so as he comes back, it makes a change in the way that we understand the Old Testament because there's a fullness to the Old Testament that had never been there before. And it's been illuminated by the cross and by the, by the presentation of Christ as, as Messiah. And so Paul, by the calling of God, has, has been, it's been revealed to him what this is, and he's teaching it to the early churches. And so then it becomes a teaching for us as well. What becomes significant about this letter to Colossae being written to Gentile believers, in many ways it impacts us in a more powerful way if we can truly understand what's going on. So in the Old Testament, what would happen if someone, if there was a Gentile, and, and probably the majority of us in the room are Gentiles, so if you had wanted to convert, if you had wanted to find salvation, you would have to turn to the Jewish nation because the Jewish nation is the chosen people of God. And in the Old Testament, as the chosen nation of God, chosen people of God, they were to reveal what it was like to live a life totally committed to the Lord and his commands and his laws and to live that out in such a way that it would be attractive to the nations around them. So people would say, I want to be a part of this. And that would happen. And then as Gentiles wanted to become a part of this, there was a process that they had to go to in order to be converted from Gentile to Jew. And the process was three steps. And the first step that was involved was circumcision. Okay, because in the Old Testament, circumcision was done to the Jewish boys at eight days old. They would be circumcised, and that would set them apart because that was happening to them, but not to the Gentiles. Gentiles were uncircumcised. And so that was the first step was circumcision. So you can imagine if you were now, uh, and, and you were like, okay, I want to convert to become a, a Jew, and, and you would be circumcised. And you'd say, boy, Mom, thanks for not doing this when I was eight days old, right? You know, and it's like, okay, so you'd go through that. And the second thing you'd go through is a ceremonial washing, 
all right? And that would happen in a mikvah. And a mikvah is a bath that's, 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 um, that's been, been uh, set aside and made for a specific purpose of ceremonial cleansing. And that's used all sorts of times in the Old Testament in all sorts of the rituals for cleansing. So, so what would happen in a mikvah is there was running water because it couldn't be done in still water. And, and, and you would walk down one side and out the other so that you would go in and you would come out cleansed. Now, the interesting thing about a mikvah is you didn't go in dirty. Okay, you would go get yourself all clean first, and then you'd come into the mikvah for, for ceremonial cleansing. And then this would happen, this would happen for all sorts of reasons. I love laughter, don't you? Um, so it would happen for all sorts of reasons. And so you would go down into the water, and these were very deep, so you'd go down and you'd be completely immersed, and then you would come back out. And that was a ceremonial washing. Women had to do this, men had to do this, the priests had to do this. And if you converted from, from being a Gentile to Jew, you would need to first be circumcised, second, experience this washing in the mikvah. The third thing would you have to offer a sacrifice in the temple if possible. So these three steps were needed to convert from Gentile to Jew. So what? It makes the passage so exciting. Look at what happens. Here it is. Paul's telling them, because understand what's going to happen is he sees, he's looking forward, next week we're going to look at it, that the Jews are going to come and say, what you've experienced is not sufficient. You are not converted. You're not converted because you haven't experienced these things. And Paul's saying, you have. Look, let me show you. All right? He's doing it with that much excitement, I'm sure. So he says this. He says, in him you were circumcised. In Christ you've experienced circumcision. Because understand, in the unfolding of salvation history, you know, God continues to reveal what's needed for the relationship with God to be restored, for reconciliation to happen, which happens through Christ and in Christ. So the circumcision of the Old Testament that was a cutting away of the flesh, looking forward to the coming of Christ, is now completed in him. And that cutting away of the flesh is a cutting away of the old nature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All right, and, you, and you're thinking, okay, but I still have these tendencies. You do, but there's been a circumcision that's happened where, where as you receive Christ as Lord, you, that, that part of you has been cut away, and you are now free to choose to serve Christ. And there's been a cutting away of that. That circumcision has happened. The second thing he talks about here, he says, having been buried with him in baptism... All right, now here it is. See the washing. Now, we don't, we don't really catch this so much anymore because for us, baptism has become this optional, see if you want to do it later thing, okay? But that's not at all what it was laid out for in Scripture. Baptism was designed to be almost a part of the conversion experience. Doug Moo puts it this way. He says, the early church conceived of faith, the gift of spirit, and water baptism as components of one unified experience, which Paul calls conversion initiation. Just as faith is always assumed to lead to baptism, baptism always assumes faith for its validity. Okay, so 
So baptism isn't what saves you. Baptism assumes faith to give it validity. So baptism becomes valid because of the faith that saved you. But this this idea of, of receiving Christ and therefore receiving the Holy Spirit, baptism into the church, and then this baptism experience, this water baptism for the early church was all part of one conversion initiation experience. And what's interesting is, is Paul, in his testimony, he says, after, after the, the things fell off my eyes and I, my mouth was, my eyes were clear, I heard a voice saying, get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. So, so immediately there was the baptism. You remember the day of Pentecost when, when Peter preached, he said, repent and be baptized. Okay? So this washing, they understood for a conversion to, to happen and take root, part of that conversion experience was this washing, this, this ceremonial washing. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them, washing them. It's an important part of the conversion initiation experience. It's not required for heaven. We get that. But it is, it is a symbol that has great and rich, uh, rich meaning. And it's interesting at this point, instead of talking about in Christ, Paul begins to talk about with Christ, with him. Okay, so the preposition changes because in order to be in Christ, you need to experience things with Christ. And one of the things that we need to experience with Christ is the death and burial and resurrection. We need to experience that with Christ. And Paul's making it clear to this church and these believers that you have experienced this with Christ through the baptism experience. And it's significant. And I think, I think it, it, it's really significant that it kept its power. And he was able to speak to that church at that point in time about the baptism experience because every believer would have experienced this. It wouldn't have been, eh, trusted in Christ, that baptism thing, maybe I'll do that later. I really don't like to tell people in public how much I love Jesus. All right, so, you know, see, see what I mean? See what I'm getting at? Good, okay, you're all riveted. I'm glad. I think this is, I think this is exciting myself because it, it brings a whole new light to what it means to be converted and to keep ourselves from being taken captive because we understand the entire thing. And then raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. So this idea that the sacrifice that's needed then is Christ. So there's been a circumcision, a sacrifice, and a washing. That's that experience. It just so happens that we're having a baptism service on the 16th of August. Praise God for timing. Amen? So if you'd like to look into that, if you've never been baptized, and you'd like to, to go into that water and consider the fact that you've been washed and that you've died to sin and been buried with Christ and been raised again with him so that death, so that sin no longer has, has that hold on you it used to have because you've died to sin, Romans 6, uh, there's a study out there, and you can see that. So God made you alive with Christ. So you were dead, and God made you alive with him. And that should just overwhelm us with thankfulness. That's where the thankfulness piece comes from. God made you alive with him. 
So if you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, you've been made alive with Christ. In what ways do you truly live? How is your life an example of what it means to truly live? All right, so like I said, kind of an intense text this week, but it's setting us up for next week. The next thing we see is we're, is we're free to live in Christ by when we receive him as Lord. The next thing we see is that we're freed from condemnation. Freed from condemnation. He forgave us all our sins. Oh, wait, now, there we see something again. You'll see that he was talking, Paul was talking, when you were dead in your sins, because of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ, and now he says he forgave us all our sins. All right, so remember, he's talking to Gentile believers here. So he's saying, you, Gentile believers, this is where you were. And now you've joined us in God, that God has forgiven us our sins. And in the church, Gentile Jew together in an amazing way. All right, and that's, that's a little, little line there. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to it. And he took it away, nailing it to a cross. Having disarmed the power and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So this is big. He forgave us all our sins. As you receive Christ as your Lord, he forgave us all our sins. I remember when I was a kid and I first asked Jesus into my heart. I first received him. And I thought, okay, because Jesus can come back any time. And what if he comes back and I've committed a sin and I haven't asked him to forgive me? So then I'm going to be like guilty and he's going to take everybody else and I'm going to be left here. You know, and, and that used to really bother me. Does that bother anybody else? You don't have to raise your hand or anything like that unless you really want to. But to think of, man, am, am, are my sins really forgiven? This passage tells us that he forgave us all our sins. He forgave our sins past, present, and future. At the time that you come and you receive Christ as your Savior, every one of your sins is forgiven. Because remember, every one of your sins is a future sin to Christ. He hung on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins that you'd commit in the future. Now, does that give you license to do whatever you want? Of course not. Romans 6 again. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the understanding that all of your sins have been forgiven. It's like, amen. Like, thank you, Jesus. What? Why? Why should you forgive my sin? Because each one of my sins, you remember, is, is an absolute affront to his authority and his holiness. And then he canceled the written code. Canceled the written code that was against us. And it's regulations that stood opposed to us. And he took it and nailed it to the cross. So he took this written code that was against us. And what is that? The best way to express this is that it was the I-O-U that we owe God. See, you owe God because you were created by him. You belong to him. He, you're his. And by sin, we've sold ourselves from him to, to Satan. And, and we owe God for, for all of our disobedience. This is giant I-O-U. 
And we each feel that. We each feel that condemnation from the way that we've rejected God. And at some level, we live with that in our hearts. So to know that not only have we been forgiven, but the IOU has been placed on the cross as well. Amen. And I think that sometimes the people I see who are having the biggest struggle in their lives are the people who believe that they still owe God. That, that somehow, even though they've asked for forgiveness for their sins, it hasn't been enough and they still owe God something. And they say things like, I can't forgive myself, or, or things like that. Instead of understanding and realizing that your forgiveness is complete, and what, all we need to do is accept the forgiveness that Christ has given us. And if you accept that, you can live free from the sin, the guilt, and the shame. And that's what the cross is all about. Because the IOU has been nailed on the cross and it's gone. None of us deserve that. But none of us des deserve to live outside the truth of that. That's where Satan wants us to live as he condemns us and brings condemnation in. Finally in this verse, and I love this, we see that, that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them and he triumphed over them by the cross. The reason I love this so much, if we go to, to uh, 1 Corinthians 2, it says that if, if the, if, if the uh, powers, if Satan would have known what they were doing, they never would have done the cross. But see, Satan was like, oh yeah, we've got God weak. God's down here in the flesh. He's weak. We've got him. We can overtake him now. So they took Jesus and, and, they, and they, 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 dis, they disarmed him. They just stripped him away and they disarmed him in the courts and, and they put him up on the cross and they made a public spectacle of him and just stripped him down, hung him there naked for everybody to see. And then they went around triumphing the fact that they had defeated Jesus. And Satan was thrilled because he had disarmed Jesus, he had made a public spectacle of it, and he had triumphed over him. But then the grave opened up. And all of a sudden the triumph wasn't there. Amen? And our Jesus rose again. And what he did, amen, what he did is he rose again in the scandal of the cross. He turned this around on Satan. And he disarmed his power. And Satan no longer has power over sin, over death. Death no longer has power. And not only did he disarm him, he made a public spectacle of it. Yeah, Satan thought it was great to have Jesus up on the cross again, and he just took that cross, the scandal of it, and he turned it around and said, publicly, I defeated Satan. Amen. <laughs> defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated death, and triumphed over it. So death no longer has a sting. See, our sins are forgiven by a risen Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul wants this church in Colossae to understand this so they're not swept away by anything that causes them to believe this isn't true or causes them to not be thankful about this. So we hold on to this truth that, yes, we have been circumcised. We've been baptized. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. We've died with Christ. We've risen with him, and our sins are forgiven. So how are you living as one who is forgiven are there any ways that you're allowing yourself 
to be trapped into words or thoughts of condemnation because the price paid was too high for you to allow yourself to be trapped there. Receiving Christ Jesus as Lord frees us to live in him. Amen? God, thank you for that. Thank you for Jesus. Overwhelm us with a sense of thankfulness, Lord. Help that to be the identifying characteristic of our lives. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room who's trapped in believing that your forgiveness is not sufficient, that the IOU has not been paid, I pray that you'd move them out from under that condemnation. If there's any way, Lord, that we've been kidnapped into a source of authority outside of you, I pray, Lord, that we'd put those off and run back to you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Let it change our lives, I pray, in your name. Amen.